Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. I'm going to ask Jason if he'll come up and join me on the stage. Uh, 27 years ago, uh, after nine years, I resigned as teaching pastor and directional leader at Grace Church in Little Rock, and I accepted a call to come here to be the first ever teaching pastor and directional leader at what was uh, then called Southside Baptist Church. And on a Sunday morning in 19, uh, October 1996, Walt Hanford and I stood before the congregation. Walt had been the senior pastor for 31 years, and Walt held uh, this very baton in his hand, and he passed it to me. Now, Walt, with uh, great conviction and foresight, he had moved the church from a senior pastor model to a more grace-based, team-oriented model of leadership, and that's something that I had enjoyed for the nine years I was at Grace. And, uh, you know, as I look back over the last uh, 27 years, I am, I am so very grateful that God brought me here. I am so very grateful for how we, together, have learned to grow in grace and become um, a community of grace. And we are in a new season of growth now where God is giving us the opportunity to multiply the grace that we've received and the grace that we enjoy to multiply that grace to other places. About three and a half years ago, the elders and I sensed that God uh, wanted us to add to our leadership team someone who could lead and oversee this new season of our church life. And uh, that man is uh, Jason Malone. Now, Jason and I have a long history going back to my early days here. Then Jason left uh, and he, after 10 years, and went out and started uh, Summit Church and was there uh, 15, 16, 17 years. Yeah, yeah, come on up closer. And, um, uh, you know, the way that God worked to bring this man back um, in, 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 in my heart and the way I see it is just nothing short of a miracle. And... Um, we brought him on staff here about 30 months ago, and during those 30 months, uh, he and I spent a lot of time together. I have watched him in all staff meetings and upstate, upstate church collective meetings, organizational team meetings, all kinds of other things, and I, I believe with all my heart that God has brought Jason here for such a time as this. Basically, we split the job title I held as teaching pastor and directional leader we split it so that now Jason will be the directional pastor and I'll continue to be a teaching pastor, which means as the t-shirt says, I'm not retiring. <laughs> now, <laughs> over, uh, over the last two weeks, we gave you the opportunity to affirm the elder's decision to call Jason to be the next directional pastor here and I am happy to tell you today that your affirmation carried by over 98%. Yeah, so, and so, Jason, it is uh, my great uh, privilege to pass this baton to you, and would you now welcome Jason as your next directional pastor? Super sweet. Uh, 
Very kind and gracious. Uh, a couple of things, and I had the opportunity to speak to this uh, two weeks ago a little bit when I was teaching. Um, from my perspective, uh, the wording throughout this process was really on purpose, and it was really intentional. And that was that you would affirm, uh, not me, but that you would affirm the elder's decision. Uh, in a church this size, as you can imagine, it would be really impossible, even if you're a member here, because there's lots of members, for all the members to know me. But what you do know is how you've been led by these men. And so that was a real uh, uh, interesting, strategic, and intentional piece on their end to, to talk about it in that way. And so I'm super thankful for your affirmation of them and how they uh, have led and continue to lead here. The baton uh, is great. I'm super thankful for it. Uh, but I want to say this, um, and I'd already said this to Charlie, and I said it to the elders the other day. Uh, this is not symbolic of position uh, from our perspective, just so we're all clear. It is very symbolic of mission. Walt uh, Hanford that Charlie just mentioned laid a foundation for this church family, and that foundation was grace, and it was at great cost, great personal cost to him and his wonderful wife, Libby. And uh, you've heard me say this before, but it seems fitting to say it again today. Walt was my pastor. Uh, I started attending this church when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, two of the reasons, two of the primary reasons that I continue to, one, wanted to be in ministry was Walt Hanford. Stay in ministry is the gentleman standing behind me who took that foundation that Walt had laid and said, not only are we going to have a foundation of grace, we're going to grow in grace. And the testimony of so many of you in this place, if I had time today to hand you a microphone, you would say, I have grown in understanding the grace of God because of how Charlie and the team here have lifted high the scriptures and the good news of Jesus. And so I'm incredibly thankful for that. And we are in this season now of multiplying grace. That doesn't mean we're getting ready to start a bunch of new things. Uh, what it does mean, Lord willing, is we'll continue to do what we've been doing. That was the other strategic part in me being here for 30 months before this transition even took place. I'm not here to announce any new initiatives. We're doing what we do, and the Lord has been so kind and gracious. When we look and see the numbers of people that the Lord has brought to Fellowship Greenville, that is an answer to prayer for us in leadership. It's not, we got a bunch of people, now what do we do? It's, Lord, you're leading us to multiply grace. Oh, cool, now there's hundreds and hundreds more of people. Like, he's providing for what it is that he's called us to. Whether that be through the Upstate Church Collective with Redemption Life or soon to be out in Woodruff or even down the road six miles at Adams Mill. And so I'm thankful to be a part of a team where we'll continue to do what it is that the Lord has called us to do in the months and years to come. So with that being said, I'm really excited that we can do what we love doing on Sunday morning along with worshiping through song, and that is open up the scriptures and study together, be reminded of who God is, who we are in Jesus Christ, and how that changes everything. Love you for you. Love you for you. All right, one more thing quickly before we uh, jump into our study in a very long passage of scripture in 1 Samuel. Quick reminder, we're in the month of January and we're calling this month First Fruits. Uh, as you know, 
Uh, God's opened the door for us to expand ministry six, uh, six miles down the road at the Adams Mill YMCA. And if you drive by there now, you can see all kinds of uh, trucks out there and constructions going on, so it's very exciting. This expansion helps us create more space here for the people that God brings, continues to bring through our doors. And also, though, it enables us to multiply ministry to more and more people in the neighborhoods surrounding uh, the Y property. Now, uh, many of us, hundreds and hundreds of us, have pledged to give toward this project over the next three year, years. And to date, upwards of $9.3 million have been given and pledged. And in this first month of the new year, the idea behind First Fruits Month is that we're asking you to pray and consider giving as much of your pledge as possible up front so we can pay as we go for as long as we can before we have to begin uh, paying with bank borrowed money. Obviously, the less we have to pay in interest, the farther our dollars go. Now, of course, we know that everybody can't do that, and that's totally okay. We're just so very grateful that uh, you've made a pledge, and so don't feel any pressure. But some of you can make an upfront gift, and some of you already have, and for that, we are very, very thankful. Now, when we say it's uh, not about giving a certain amount, we really mean that. But it is about all of us giving generously and sacrificially as the Spirit leads us to give, and that's what we're asking you to pray about and consider in this month. All right. Okay. One of the most basic things that we need to know about God is this big idea that I've been thinking about for several weeks now. When God writes the stories of our lives, his plot lines are not always the plot lines we would choose if we were writing our stories. When God writes the stories of our lives, clearly his plot lines are not always the plot lines we would choose if we were writing our own stories. Now, I want you to pause a minute and get out of your head for just a minute. When you, when you look at this on the screen, when this goes into your mind and into your head and your heart, what emotions do you feel rising inside you when you hear that statement? I know you feel something. I mean, I certainly do. I, I have for several weeks now when I first came up with this idea. I, I mean, is it, is it hurt? Is it sadness? Is it anger? Is it fear, loneliness? Like, what, are, what do you feel? Now, if we could write the story of our lives, if we could put a plot line for our lives on a graph, I think it would look like this. There it is. Good, better, your best life now. Go for it. I mean, in fact, if you are a follower of Jesus, we kind of expect God to write our stories like that, and we don't really understand it when things like setbacks and shortfalls and failures and hardships and poor health and cancer and loss of loved ones and betrayals. We don't understand it when those things come into our lives and we wrestle with why God would allow those things to come into our lives. I mean, I mean, if, if God is good and loving and if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then why not write the stories of our lives like this steady, upwardly moving, ascending diagonal line? But the truth is... 
very few of us, maybe none of us, experience God or life like that. I mean, were your growing up years, your growing up home life, was it like that? Um, how, how was your relationship with your parents? How about your teen years, your college years? What wounds do you still carry from the first 25 years of your life? Or how about now? I mean, you, let's say you're single and you know nothing has worked out uh, yet and you're waiting on the one to come along. It, it doesn't feel like you're going from good to better. Uh, everybody gets married thinking that my marriage will certainly be like that ascending diag- diagonal line going from good to better to best. Has that worked out for you? I mean, we made vows before God and people for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for sickness and health, but none of us really expected the worse or the poor or the sickness. The same, same is true with, par- with our parenting and our jobs and our careers. The plot lines of our stories are more like this. Now, it has been, has come, I did all this. I did all the graphics, okay? And it has come to my attention that the thing that people focus much most on is that dot in the middle of the screen, which honestly, I have no idea why that's there. But maybe you're stuck there. I don't know. (laughs) When you're in the middle of of a crazy plot line of chaos like this in the up and down messes of life, Uh, uh, sometimes it doesn't feel at all like our plot lines are ascending. Sometimes it feels like you're just stuck in a dark wilderness of hurt and lonely and sad and angry and afraid, maybe guilt and shame. The question is, how do you walk with God in the middle of a descending plot line, the descending plot line that God has allowed to come into your life, a plot line that you would have never chosen for yourself? How do you walk with God in a time like that? And that's the question I want to unpack today. And for sure, there's more than one answer to that question. But nowhere in the Bible do we see an answer as clearly as we do as in the story of David. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, One of the the things that we want you to know about us is that most Sunday mornings, you'll find us teaching through whole books of the Bible, sometimes verse by verse, Sometimes looking at larger sections of scripture, looking for big ideas, and, but we're always digging into the Bible to see, with a desire to see more clearly who God is and how God works in our lives and in our world. We're always asking, what does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves in relationship to God? And how does this passage point us to Jesus? And right now, we're in a series that we've entitled Royalty, which walks us through the books of First and Second Samuel, and we're in part two of this series. Now, last year at this time, we started through First Samuel, and we looked at Israel's first ever king, King Saul. And sadly, even though Saul started pretty well, he became more and more set on doing things his way rather than God's way. And time after time, God sent his man Samuel to confront Saul and to call him to repent and to turn back to God. But Saul, even in the face of the undeniable evidence that he had disobeyed God's instructions, Saul, he just made excuses. 
He justified and rationalized away what God had told him to do, defending his actions, implying that his way was a better way than God's way. Now, back in Genesis 6, God says something uh, very pointed and very serious. He says, my spirit will not always strive with people, meaning that there are times that if a person refuses to submit to God over and over and over, it's possible for that person to reach a point of no return with God, and Saul reached that point. So in 1 Samuel 15, 10, Yahweh says to Samuel, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and Yahweh said, I regret that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my commands. So Samuel takes that news to Saul, and he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and given it to someone else who's better than you. And then God then instructs Samuel to go to Bethlehem to the family of a man named Jesse and, and, and to, in secret, anoint a new king who turns out to be a teenage shepherd boy named David, the runt of the litter, cute but looking nothing like a king, probably looks something like this. Thank you, Whitney Rexford, for sending this in. Now, we've looked at those stories, and we've also looked at the well-known story of how David killed Goliath with a slingshot and with a faith in God that set him apart from anybody else in Israel. And when he killed Goliath, uh, there was a battle that ensued where David led the armies of Israel to fight the Philistines, and they conquered him. And all the dancing, tambourine-playing women sang what became a hit song in Israel. I think it was titled uh, 10,000 Reasons. And, and it went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And everybody was singing this song at work, at home, in pubs. Buskers on street corners were singing it. And, and you know how it is when you get a song stuck in your head and you just can't get it out of your head? It just kind of drives you crazy? Well, this song got stuck in Saul's head, and it literally did drive him mad crazier and crazier, and, he's, and he set his mind on one thing and one thing only, and that was the son of Jesse must die. And that's what 1 Samuel 18 to 31 is all about. Saul's decade-long pursuit to hunt down and kill David. So even though Yahweh said that he had torn the kingdom from Saul and was giving it to David, a man after his own heart, the leadership transition did not happen right away, and this is where David's story intersects our stories. You see, if I were plotting David's story, the plot line would go something like this. 1 Samuel 15, Yahweh tells Saul, I've torn the kingdom away from you. I'm giving it to a man after my own heart. 1 Samuel 16, so David stands among his brothers. Samuel comes out with a flask of olive oil, anoints David with oil. The Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully on David from that day on. And at the same time, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and, and an evil spirit filled him with depression and fear. 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath with a slingshot, chops off his head with his own sword. And then 1 Samuel 18, David leads the Israelite army against the Philistine army, wins a great victory, and all the women start singing David's praises. But then some time passes, and sometime later, the Philistines come against Israel. This time, Saul and his son Jonathan lead the army out to fight, but they both die in battle. And then 2 Samuel chapter 5, 
Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people. You will be Israel's leader. And so there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord and with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king over Israel. That's how I would write his story. By the way, I'll be preaching like at 30,000 feet today. I'm going to do a flyover of chapters 18 to 31, looking at this large middle section of David's story. And I know it's crazy, and as hard as I tried, I couldn't find another preacher or teacher or commentator who was crazy enough to attempt this. So I'm going to do it. But there's a big idea in the flyover here that you, that, you, that you can miss if you get stuck in the details at ground level. So stay with me. Anyway, if I were to write David's story, I would write it so that it goes like this. David the shepherd boy, David the future king, David the giant killer, David the great military leader, David the king. I would write a book called From Good to Great. Problem is... That is not how God writes David's story. Remember, when God writes the stories of our lives, his plot lines are not always the plot lines we would choose if we were writing the story. And in 1 Samuel 18 through 31, we see David, the newly anointed king, running for his life as a fugitive. I mean, for reasons known only to God, Yahweh leaves Saul on the throne, spiraling down further and further, deeper and deeper into a jealous, raging, crazy man hell-bent on killing David. And in these chapters, we read how Saul tried to kill David at least a dozen times. But the fact is, Saul woke up every morning and thinking to himself, this will be the day that I kill that son of a Jesse, and I'll be with him He actually calls him the son of Jesse. He doesn't even call him by name. So anyway, all right. That said, David's actual story looks something like this. So David, shepherd boy, future king, giant killer. David, hunted man on the run. Now, he he was learning how to be a great military general there, but then from that to to the king. But, 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 But remember, the storyline on the screen here shows us the end of the story. But for David, it really looked and felt like this. Like David didn't, he didn't know. I mean, he, he, he found himself in a place that he would have never imagined himself to be, a fugitive stuck in, a ten, long, tick, in 10 long years of running for his life with no end, end in sight, constantly looking over his shoulder, waking up every morning, wondering if this could be his last day. You say, well, I think David had more faith than that. No, he did not. No, he's just like us. His giant killing faith was shaken to the core. Let me show you. In chapter 20, when Jonathan, Saul's son and David's most loyal friend, tries to convince him that his father isn't really trying to kill him, David says, no, I'm telling you, as surely as Yahweh lives and as surely as you live, I am just one step away from death. Now, of course, we know Saul could no more kill David than Goliath could kill David. But right here, David doesn't seem to know that. At least he didn't feel that way. He's made out of the same dust as we are. His faith was shaken just like our faith gets shaken sometimes. And in in these chapters, we see him afraid for his life, 
sad, hurt, lonely, a feeling of, that God's abandoned him at times, fearful, angry, and no doubt he struggles with guilt. Like guilt, what are you talking about, guilt? Yeah, guilt. And you really need to take some time and read these chapters this week. But yes, guilt, let me show you. Next chapter, chapter 21, David's running from Saul, he's hungry. So he goes to the town of Nob. I think it's east of due west, but anyway, Nob. And in Nob was the place that the tabernacle worship took place in those days. He goes to see Ahimelech the priest. Let me read the story to you. Chapter 21, verse 1, you can follow along. Uh, I think I'm reading from the NLT. David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Uh, Why are you alone? Why is nobody with you? David says, the king has sent me on a private matter. He told me not to tell anybody why I'm here. I've told my men where to meet me later. That's a lie. That's a lie. Now, uh, tell me, what, what is there to eat around here? Give me five loaves of bread and two fish. No, no wrong story, sorry. Give me five loaves of bread and anything else you have. Well, we don't have any regular bread, the priest replied, but there's this holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. Oh, I never allow my men to be with women when we're on a campaign. And since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? Another lie. These, the, David has 600 guys around him, and they are a ragtag, rowdy bunch of men who did not have morals anywhere close to David. Verse 6. Since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced the day before. Now, uh, Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. David asked Elimelech, do you have a spear or a sword? Uh, The king's business was so urgent that I didn't have time to grab a weapon. Another lie. Uh, I, uh, the, the priest says, I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. If it's wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod, take it if you want it. There's nothing else here. David said, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. So David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. Now, by the way, Gath is Goliath's hometown. So David tries to find refuge among his sworn enemies, Not the best choice, not a great act of faith. And when things get tight, he pretends he's insane and he's able to make his escape. Now, back to Elimelech and the holy bread. Doeg, the Edomite, eventually tells Saul how Elimelech helped David. Remember, David lied about his reason for being there. Saul certainly didn't send him. And when Saul finds out, he goes and he murders 85 priests there at Nob. When he, he, then he goes into town, hunts down all their relatives, kills their relatives, men and women, kills their wives, their children, and their babies. And only one priest, Abiathar, lives to tell about it. Now, don't you think a man who was after God's own heart would feel overwhelming guilt and grief over the people who lost their lives because of his lies and deceit? Sure he did. In chapter 21, verse 22, David confesses his guilt. He says to Abiathar, I have caused the death of your father's family. 
And David vowed to protect and care for Abiathar and his family for the rest of his life. I'm convinced that just like you and me, David didn't just wrestle with the, with the horribly confusing circumstances of his life. He also wrestled with the heaviness of all the different emotions that came at him, tormented him at this time, including guilt. And you can go read Psalm 38. It parallels what goes on in this story perfectly. Now, I've been reading a book. It's a very insightful book by a guy named Chip Dodd. It's entitled The Voice of the Heart, which in it, uh, Chip identifies eight basic emotions that he says are gifts from God. Emotions are gifts that help us better understand what's going on deep inside our hearts and how being aware of these particular eight emotions can help us connect more deeply with God. And those eight emotions are hurt, lonely, sad, anger, fear, shame, guilt, and glad. I think it's easy to understand how David would have experienced every one of these feelings during this descending plot line time of his life. Yep, he was a man after God's own heart. Yep, he was a man of faith. Yep, he was for the most part a man of integrity. But for over 10 years, he struggled deep in his soul with that descending plot line running through his life. I mean, think about it. If you knew God promised that you would be the next king of Israel, then why wouldn't you expect your story to look like this from good to great? Why wouldn't you expect it to go that way? David has no idea why all this bad stuff is happening to him, why his life has turned out the way it did. He has no idea why he's constantly in danger. He has no idea of of how what he's going through fits with God's purpose for his life. He has no idea. Now, are you feeling this? Get out of your head. Put yourself in his place. I know, I know, none of us will ever find ourselves in the exact same place as David here in chapters 18 through 31, but we do find ourselves in seemingly hopeless situations. We do find ourselves in tragic circumstances that have come upon us by no fault of our own. And some of you are even, you may be facing life-threatening situations right now. The question is, how do you live out your faith in the middle of a descending plot line that you would have never chosen for yourself? That's the question. So I'm going to make three observations from my flyover study of these chapters. When you are stuck in the middle of a descending plot line, number one, accept the fact, accept the fact that you won't always make perfect choices. You won't always get it right. Now, I love what Eugene Peterson says about the people we read about in Scripture. He writes, in Scripture... We find neither moral examples nor impeccable virtuous models. Abraham lied, Moses murdered, Jacob cheated, Judah went to a prostitute, Peter turned out to be his daughter-in-law, Peter blasphemed, David lied and deceived, and later he'll commit adultery and be involved in a murder plot to cover it up. Peterson continues, he says, what we find in Scripture is not perfection, but correction. 
Each person is challenged by God to live a uniquely glorious life of faith in relationship with him. David made mistakes. David sinned to save his own skin. David's lies and deceit cost people their lives. My point being, when the plot line of your life looks like this, accept the fact that you may not always respond in faith. You, you, you may not always say the right thing or, or do the right thing. You will say stupid things and you'll do stupid things that hurt other people and you'll take matters into your own hands and try to make the pain go away. You'll sin and you'll mess up and you'll make more messes. Now hear me, you need to listen to this. I am not saying that's okay. I'm not making excuses for sin. Nothing I'm saying justifies the bad decisions that I make or you make or the avalanche of hurt that we bring into our own lives or the lives of people who don't, when we don't get it right. No, you absolutely cannot take this first point and, 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 and say when you get yourself in a mess of your own making, you cannot say, well, nobody's perfect. That's not my point. But we have to be honest here, and this is one of the things I love about the Bible because the Bible shows us life as it really is. It shows us people as they really are. And yeah, as Peterson says in Scripture, there are no perfect moral examples to follow. There are no impeccable virtuous models for us to try to imitate. In Scripture, with men like Abraham and Moses and David, we don't see perfection. We don't always see clean and righteous hearts. I think God's showing us in this, people who love God mess up. What we do see is pursuit. We do see these people who have a passionate heart for God but mess up. We do see repentance. We do see humility. We do see men of faith navigating the ups and downs and highs and lows of their life. Sometimes they were unfaithful. Sometimes... They had no faith, they were faithless. But we do see them own their sin and try to make things right like David did there in 1 Samuel 21. You see, it's in the descending up and down plot line of our lives that we learn to walk by faith. And I don't know about you, but for me, learning means getting D's and F's on God's test, but then experiencing his grace that picks me up and dusts me off and says, hey, let's, let's go again. And even more, they may be faithless, but God's always seen as faithful. We see that he never gives up on them or us. And we see that when, when we mess up big time, when we humbly repent and turn from our sin, God's grace is right there to renew us and to restore us. And the amazing thing is, in all the downturns of David's life and all the bonehead decisions that he makes, God never gives up on him. God continues to write his story, picking him up out of the miry clay, Psalm 40, and shaping his heart and forming his character. And in fact, it's during this up and down time that he's becoming a great military general, which of course David couldn't see any good in anything that was happening in the terrible 10 years of trouble, but we see something that David couldn't see, and we see that the plot line was in fact ascending. God keeps giving him victory after victory, battle, winning battle after battle, and it's Yahweh's grace 
and kindness that corrects David. Not perfection, but correction. Yahweh corrects him, and we see that he never stops working in David's life to make him be the man who would be king. Listen, God restores and uses people who mess up, and they repent, and they take steps to make things right. He has plans and purposes for people who struggle with fear and anger and sarcasm and lust and pride and dishonesty. He has plans and purposes for people who are stuck in difficult and dangerous circumstances, who feel overwhelming hurt and loneliness and sadness and anger and fear and shame and guilt. And get this, this is how good your God is. You can mess up and you can struggle with all these things, and have God say about you, I see a man, I see a woman after my own heart. Christian, behold your God. This is who God is. This is what grace is all about. So first of all, when you're stuck in the middle of a, de- a descending plot line, don't expect that you'll always make perfect choices. It's not the end of the story if you do, especially if you turn, repent, confess your sin, make things right. God picks you right back up and says, let's take that test again. Number two, when you're stuck in the middle of a descending plot line, resist taking matters into your own hands. Now, despite David's lack of integrity in telling lives to save his own skin, David did maintain his integrity when it came to how he viewed and dealt with Saul. Saul constantly tried to kill David, tried several times to pin him to the wall with his spear, tried to get his daughter, uh, Michael, Michael, Uh, David's wife to turn on him, tried to get his son Jonathan to turn on him, tried to get him killed in battle by sending him in on uh, extremely dangerous missions. Saul was always trying to kill David. David had at least two opportunities to kill Saul. Situations that were so unbelievable where you would be tempted to think, God has delivered him into my hands. And that's exactly what David's rowdy bunch told him time and again. But David refused to take Saul's life. He absolutely refused to take matters into his own hands by killing Saul. In fact, he says a couple of times, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, he's the anointed one, but he still sees Saul. As long as Saul is alive, he's still God's man. And this comes out, that statement comes out of a story in 1 Samuel 24 where David was hiding out in a cave where, and this is weird, where Saul had slipped in to relieve himself. And so David sneaks up behind Saul and rather than to kill him, he cuts off a piece of his robe to prove to Saul he could have killed him, but he didn't and he doesn't intend to. It's absolutely amazing. Because this David's conscience bothers him about tearing off that piece of Saul's robe. It's crazy. Now, when you are living in a descending storyline, the great temptation, especially when you've waited and waited and waited and waited and there's no change in your circumstances, the great temptation is to take matters into your own hands. The great temptation is to do things your way rather than God's way in order to find some relief. Are you being tempted even now to take matters into your own hands? I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know the great temptation, if things aren't going the way that you want, 
and you hoped and you expected the great temptation is to take things into your own hands or have you taken things? Have you taken matters into your own hands? Listen, again, we see the big picture of David's story here in the wilderness. We see how trusting God's ways does ultimately work out for our highest good and we need to trust in and rest in that great truth. And finally, number three, when you're stuck in the middle of a descending plot line, pay attention to what's going on in your heart and pray your heart back to God. Now, that's exactly what David did. You say, how do you know that, Charlie? Well, first of all, we know that David wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms we have in our Bibles, 14 of which bear titles that reference the stories found in the books of First and Second Samuel. Like yesterday in our CBR reading plan through the Psalms, Psalm 18 says, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He's writing out his prayers. Psalm 34, here's the title, Psalm of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, another name for Ashish, the king of Gath, who drove him away and departed. That's a story. I just, I just referred to that story. Or Psalm 52, here's the title, for the director of music, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Elimelech. I just talked about that. He wrote a psalm about that whole experience, or more to the point of what was going on in his heart during that experience. And there are three more psalms with titles that correspond to the events here in 1 Samuel 18 to 31. So I want, as, I want to clue you in here. Like as you read through these psalms, notice the titles. And beyond the titled psalms, commentators point to as many as 35 other psalms that seem to fit with the events in 1 Samuel and many others that fit with events found in 2 Samuel. So clearly throughout this whole time, David was writing out his conversations with God in prayer as his primary way of anchoring himself in what he knew to be true about God. And we're told exactly that. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, something absolutely terrible has happened. This had nothing to do with Saul. David and his men have been out on raiding parties, and when they return home to Ziklag, they find that the Amalekites have raided their city, burned it to the ground, carried off women and children and everybody else, didn't kill them, but had taken them prisoner. Let me read it to you, 1 Samuel chapter 30. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam, and Abigail were among those captured. And David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began to talk about stoning him to death. Now I can't get my mind around how bad this is. I mean, life is bad enough already. And then this, they weep till they can weep no more. And then on top of that, David's own men are talking about killing him. But look at what David does, end of verse six. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now I take it that 1 Samuel 30 verse six is the key to understanding how David never 
lost faith in God. How he, with all his ups and downs, with his poor choices, inside that descending plot line, we see how David continued to hold on to his faith and trust in God. In all the ups and downs, living on the run, as an innocent but condemned man, David learned how to strengthen himself in the Lord. Now, don't you want to know how to do that? What's involved in that? What does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Okay, stay with me. Another question. What is it exactly that zaps your strength when you're stuck in a plot line like this? What is it that zaps your strength? Isn't it the hurt you feel, the loneliness and abandonment you feel? Isn't it the sadness and the anger and the fear and the shame and the guilt that feels like quicksand? Yeah, what zaps the strength out of you, out of me, is what's going on deep in our hearts and our emotional life. I mean, it's bad enough to be stuck in whatever negative circumstance you're in, but equally as bad being stuck in the quicksand of hurt and sad and anger and lonely and fear and shame. And what most of us do with the circumstances and the feelings that conjure up that are conjured up by those circumstances. Most of us think that we can think our way out of the mess we're in. Most of us live totally in our heads and consequently we don't pay much attention to what's going on in our hearts. But not David. He didn't simply pray out of his head, he prayed out of his heart. He prayed his hurt. He talked to God about how abandoned he felt. He poured his heart out to God over his sadness and his anger and his fear and his confusion. He paid attention to what was going on in his heart. He noticed and named the emotions swirling around his heart and he prayed his heart back to God. Now, I don't have time to unpack all this, but I did notice something here uh, that uh, I had not paid attention to before, but the Psalms actually contain... In the first service, I said four. I'm gonna add a fifth. It's not on the screen, so you have to write this down, but... The Psalms are made up of four parts, really five. Praise, complaint, petition, confidence, and confession. Praise, complaint, confession, confidence, petition. Now, they definitely don't show up that way, the same way in all the Psalms. And sometimes one or more parts are missing. But as you continue to read through the Psalms in your daily Bible reading plan, notice these five things and put them to use in in your own prayers, especially... Uh, especially complaint. We complain to everybody else. We don't complain to God like we are taught to. Now, complaints are called laments. I like the word complaint because that's what David did. David felt totally safe to complain to God about his circumstances, his enemies, his confusion, his angers, his feelings of abandonment, Hurt, sadness, he complained and he boldly asked God, petition, to change his circumstances and much of the time he would bookend his prayers with praise and expressions, statements of confidence in God. He preached the gospel to himself, but not simply to his head, but to his emotionally heavy heart. Now close your eyes and listen to Psalm 56. This is a song, and here's the title. A Psalm of David when the Philistines seized him at Gath. This is what he's praying at that time. 
Oh God, have mercy on me, for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. He's complaining. I'm constantly hounded by those who slander me and many who are boldly attacking me. But when I'm afraid, he knows how he feels. He's, he's confessing his fear at this point. When I'm afraid, I will, confidence, put my trust in you. I praise God for what he's promised. What did he promise? That he'd be king. I trust in you, God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Complaint. They're twisting what I say. They spend all their days plotting to harm me. Petition. God, bring them down. Confident rest. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. This I know. Confidence. God is on my side. And then praise. I praise God for what he's promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he's promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O God, in your life-giving light. God gave us the book of Psalms to teach us to pray that way, to teach us how to take our prayers beyond prayer lists for sick people our head prayers, to take our prayers beyond our head prayers that simply just throw up a petition asking God just to fix things. So read the Psalms, paying attention to David's heart, and then write out your own Psalms. Don't just pray in your head. Pray on paper. Pray your heart on paper, paying attention to what's going on in your heart, and pray your heart into the presence of God. And when you write out your prayers, when you pour out your heart to God in praise and petition and also in complaint and confidence and confession, remember, (laughs) this is so good, because of Jesus, you enjoy a relationship with God that's even more personal than David. Jesus lived his life in what seemed to be a descending plot line. Oh, I mean, he, he started with great promise. Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and people, but then he began his ministry, and we're told he came to his own, and his own uh, received him not. He was despised and rejected by the very people he came to save, and they, those very people arrested him and nailed him to a cross. But then God raised him, from the dead and highly exalted him, giving him a name above all names, and he now sits on David's throne in heaven, interceding for us as our great high priest so we can come boldly before his throne and you can pour out your heart to God. You can tell him how you feel. You confess when you mess up. You don't be afraid to lay your complaints before him. Ask him for what you need. Confidently preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of who God is and whose you are. And as we learn to pray like that, like David, if and when you find yourself in a descending plot line, you'll know what it means to find strength in the Lord your God. This is God's word. Father God, thank you so much for this great story. Thank you for showing us how good you are and how gracious you are and how you relate to David. And we know because of Jesus, you relate to us in an even more gracious way. Give us humble hearts 
and enable us, teach us, Holy Spirit, teach us to begin to pray our hearts back to you so that we might more deeply connect with you. And we'll trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.